The KSTE Farm Hour, brought to you in part by Mavento Insecticide from Bayer. Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's farmer Fred, Fred Hoffman. The on-again, off-again Trump-mandated tariffs, they're on again, at least at this moment. This time, the targets are imports of steel and aluminum from our closest neighbors, Canada and Mexico. Retaliations may be hitting the exports of California's farmers and ranchers as a result. We have that report. Is the food from a farmer's market healthier for you? We take a look, and we have tips if you want to start a farmer's market of your own. Also, an in-depth look at the latest threat to California's poultry industry, virulent Newcastle disease. All that, crop reports, and more on this week's KSTE Farm Hour. Let's get started. The on-again, off-again tariff imposition by the Trump administration is on again. This time, it would impose tariffs on metals imported from our closest allies, Mexico, Canada, and the European Union. It's a move sure to provoke retaliation against businesses and consumers in the United States. The Trump administration is proposing tariffs of 25% on steel, 10% on aluminum from the EU, Canada, and Mexico, and they nearly supply half of America's imported metals. And those allies have already prepared lists of American products they plan to target with tariffs. And in each instance, the products they're targeting are produced in states represented by Republican lawmakers who have supported Mr. Trump's stance. For example, the European tariffs will target goods like bourbon and Levi's jeans. Mexico plans to target imports such as flat steel, lamps, pork products, and prepared meat products, as well as apples, grapes, cranberries, and cheeses. Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue in Kansas earlier this week was asked about concerns associated with the new farm bill. His response? Getting a farm bill is really the main concern. The secretary explained to reporters the necessity of approving a new farm bill into law for the ag sector. It's very important, the certainty and predictability. Farming's tough enough. There are enough risks in farming without knowing what kind of farm programs you got to deal with. And while Secretary Purdue acknowledged farmers make market-based decisions as part of their long-term strategy. The farm programs and the farm bill has a lot to do with the decisions they make now for next year. 2018 Farm Bill crafting in Congress continues, with the current law set to expire at September's end. And if instead Congress decides to extend the current Farm Bill, the Secretary believes this would create additional and repetitive work for both employees and customers. To extend and have another leg that we have to do for a temporary, come back and discuss the same things the next year. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Water supplies have improved in the Central Valley Project, but some of its customers are expressing disappointment with the amount. The agency that operates the CVP says it will now deliver 45% of contract supplies to farm customers south of the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta. But a group representing water agencies in the region points to above-average reservoir storage and says the restricted supply will bring enormous hardships. A coalition the Coalition of Environmental Groups sued the California Delta Stewardship Council on May 25th for amending the state's Delta plan to back construction of two enormous tunnels to divert water to Southern California. The twin tunnels, also known as California Water Fix, would cause enormous harm to fish, wildlife, and people who depend on the Delta. That according to the Center for Biological Diversity. The lawsuit was filed in Sacramento County Superior Court. It says the council violated the Delta Reform Act and the California Environmental Quality Act by amending the Delta Plan to give the tunnels priority over restoring the Bay Delta. 
You may have heard President Trump this past weekend tell an audience in Michigan. For the farmers, we're going to let your guest workers come in. They're going to work on your farms. We're going to have the H2Bs come in. But then they have to go out. Then they have to go out. Actually, that's exactly what he told me a, a year ago when he... Uh, at the round table the day after I was sworn in. Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue telling reporters in Washington this week. He said, we understand agriculture needs uh, foreign-born workers and we want a legal network where they can come and we can know who they are, where they are, and, and provide the workers that agriculture needs. Some farmers have complained that the current system for bringing in workers is so complex and rigid that it's really not workable for them. Some farmers, particularly livestock producers, say they need workers on more than a seasonal basis. And some have said current enforcement actions have scared many potential workers away. Meanwhile, though, there have been a number of bills proposed in Congress to address those issues. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. California's farmers, as well as farmers throughout the nation, are waiting for the Trump administration to present their revamped H-2A Visa Agricultural Guest Worker Program rules. This according to a report in the Capitol Press. The plan is to substantially reduce the program's complexity while giving farmers incentives to use the E-Verify system, the electronic verification of employment eligibility, to ensure workers are authorized to work in the United States. The upcoming proposal is the work of the Departments of Labor, Agriculture, State, and Homeland Security. And the Wall Street Journal is wondering what happened to all the H-2B visas for this summer. The Department of Homeland Security handed out a mere 15,000 extra when the cap calls for 66,000 divided between the summer and winter workforce. And it's actually even more than that. Congress gave the administration the authority to issue as many as 69,000 more H-2B visas this summer to meet employer needs. And although it does not reflect agricultural workers, it does reflect a lot of workers involved in professions that have a direct link to farming. Landscapers, fisheries, restaurants, and many other industries. Members of Congress will be back in their home districts next week presenting farmers and ranchers with a great opportunity to talk face-to-face -face with them about the need to pass a farm bill. Randy Dwyer, Director of Grassroots Development with the American Farm Bureau Federation, says it's important to talk with their legislators about the Farm Bill before it's reconsidered in the House on June 22nd. The Farm Bill is something that's debated and passed once every five years. It covers conservation, it covers crop insurance, it covers so many things important to farmers and ranchers across the country. This bill is essential for risk mitigation for farmers and ranchers, and it's provides food, fuel, and fiber security for America. The farm bill is important to all Americans, not just those in agriculture. Dwyer says it's vital for farmers to engage with lawmakers in their home districts. Meet with their legislators, whether it's in a public setting at a town hall. If their member of Congress did vote yes for the farm bill, to stand up and publicly thank them for voting and supporting the farm bill. It can be at the parade. It can be at a listening session if your member is hosting a listening session. These are all venues and opportunities to do it. We're also asking members to send an email. It's something that can be done very quickly, and that information is recorded back in the congressional office. Farmers and ranchers can go to fb.org forward slash advocacy and send an email to their members of Congress to thank them for supporting the Farm Bill or to ask them to reconsider if they voted against it. It's very important that Farm Bureau members are proactive. 
that they reach out to their legislators, whether they voted in support or against the Farm Bill, and let them know that we're happy with their vote if they voted yes, and they were disappointed with their vote if they voted no. Chad Smith, Washington. Here's this week's California crop report. Potatoes for seed and beans were emerging in Sacramento County. Wheat was turning gold and drying out up in Calusa County. Mild weather conditions had a positive impact on planted crops here in the Sacramento Valley. Grapes are developing well. Vineyard leaf removal was ongoing. Stone fruit orchards were irrigated and fertilized. New orchards are being planted. The cherry harvest is ongoing. Some early apricots were harvested. Pomegranates are blooming and forming fruit. The olive bloom was drawing to a close. Valencia oranges are being harvested. Some citrus trees are being planted as older trees were trimmed and skirted. Almonds are developing well. Almond and walnuts were irrigated. Pesticides and fungicides were applied to some almond groves. Weed control is ongoing. Tomato transplants continue. Some fields are being irrigated. Onions for seed and sweet corn were progressing well down in Imperial County. Onions for dehydration were harvested in Imperial County as well. Rangeland and non-irrigated pasture was in fair to excellent condition. Sheep are grazing on retired cropland. Some bees are being staged near melon and vegetable fields. Take the KSTE Farm Hour with you wherever you go. It's available at KSTE.com or the iHeartRadio app in streaming mode, or you can download it from your favorite third-party podcast aggregator such as iTunes. More of the KSTE Farm Hour is on the way. And now let's get back to the KSTE Farm Hour. It's a practice that goes back thousands of years on agricultural land, creating and using half-burned wood, biochar, to foster better plant growth and improve the soil. With increasing amounts of pruned wood available, plus millions of dead forest here in California, there may be a modern revival at hand. One of Biochar's biggest cheerleaders here in California is UC Riverside Extension Specialist Milt McGiffin. McGiffin is optimistic about the dual promise of eliminating unwanted wood materials as well as its offer of nutritional support for plants of all kinds. Yes, and for the simple reason that there's only so many ways you can dispose of organic waste. And when you start doing the math on how you're going to dispose of this waste, uh, where you're going to put it, are you going to contribute to the greenhouse gas problem or are you going to decrease the greenhouse gas problem biochar starts looking pretty good it may be a while but it it does look good and we are seeing people do it we start seeing people getting the, the equipment to just do it right on their own farm if this ever got subsidized by the government as something to use you know maybe subsidize it under a greenhouse gas reduction program or something like that it would really take off. The problem with it is there just isn't a lot of money. That's that's basically where you are. And that's generally true of all the waste products. You don't see a lot of research and other things in, in the compost either for that simple reason. There just isn't a base of funding to do it. But when you start doing the math on logically, what are you going to do with these waste products? Biochar stands up really well. Thinking about incorporating biochar into your farming operation, the CDFA, the Fertilizer Research Education Program, and the Department of Land, Air, and Water Resources are teaming up to host Biochar Field Day. The event will bring together researchers, industry representatives, and other interested stakeholders to discuss the feasibility of biochar in agroecosystems. Presentations will highlight research, showcase available resources, and provide up-to-date information on biochar in 
California agriculture. It's coming up fairly soon, though, Wednesday, June the 6th. It'll be held from 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. at the Russell Ranch Sustainable Agriculture Facility on Russell Boulevard in Winters. There is a $15 fee, which includes infield presentations, a tour, panel discussion, lunch, and a question and answer session. For details, call 916-900-5022 or do an internet search on the phrase, the biochar blog, University of California. If you're thinking of starting your own farmer's market but don't know where to start, USDA is here to help. With the Wholesale Market and Food Facility Design Program, that's what allows us to do the work with the farmer's markets. Agricultural Marketing Service architect Ron Batcher works with private individuals or local governments. We have to work with them from a fundamental level of, do you have any farmers in mind? Do you have any farmers that are, you know, interested in selling at your farmer's market? Sometimes it's no, and then it's really beginning to work with them on establishing their ideas. And then... We go to the community to assist them in creating either a farmer's market or a community market, a public market, work with a historic building or an existing building and convert that into community marketplace for them. For more information, go to ams.usda.gov. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Nevada County Foothill farmers northeast of Sacramento say they've succeeded in finding pockets of land on which to grow vegetables. Farmers produce a variety of vegetable crops while coping with uneven terrain, thin soils, and temperature extremes. But cooler summer temperatures in the foothills allow growers to extend the season for lettuce and other greens. The farmers then sell their crops at Farmer's Market as well as at other direct marketing outlets. If you are like folks here uh, shopping at this Farmer's Market in Washington, D.C., you are one of only about 4.5% of Americans who shop at Farmer's Markets or roadside stands or other places where you can buy directly from farmers. And from a study of uh, 4,800 U.S. households, chances are then you are perhaps more highly educated, more concerned with nutrition and health, more likely to have a garden yourself. You are also more likely to spend more money than others on fruits and vegetables. Does that... um sort of cover it there? That's right. Okay, that's uh, Hayden Stewart, economist with the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Now you've uh, found all this out, Hayden, by going through the food buying and spending surveys of 4,800 households. They logged in a lot of information, but only 170 of all of those 4,800 reported doing any shopping for fruits and vegetables at a farmer's market or other direct outlet. Now, Hayden, let me uh, get this part straight here. Uh, The 170 and then the other uh, 4,630 households spent about the same amount of money on fruits and vegetables at supermarkets, a bit over $16. But those 170 who also went to farmers markets and such for fruits and vegetables? They spent another $12 there on average. Okay, so what? Why go to all the trouble to find that out? Americans in general don't eat a sufficient quantity and variety of fruits and vegetables. And we're always looking for ways to bring the American consumer's diet into better alliance with dietary recommendations. Ah, so uh, maybe if we got more people to go to farmer's markets and such, then what would that do? We would like to believe that encouraging households to buy products like fruits and vegetables directly from farmers might increase their demand for fruits and vegetables. Okay, so they'd spend more on them, and then their diets would improve. Oh, you are shaking your head sort of like in a no manner? We don't know how spending more 
translates back to diet quality. Well, how, how would it not? Spending more money could also just mean buying more expensive types of fruits and vegetables. Okay, so uh, we don't know if these folks here uh, buying fruits and vegetables have any healthier overall diet than people who shop at uh, supermarkets exclusively, right? That's the next step. That's what we have to figure okay. out. Okay. Is, are they just spending more or are they actually healthier? That's the next step. Oh, you got a lot of work to do here on this whole subject, and you are chomping at the bit to get going. Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, do farmer's market customers actually have healthier diets? Does buying uh, direct from farmers make any difference in those diets? Would programs encouraging people to do more shopping at those direct outlets make any difference? And if so, how? Those are good questions. Okay, so Hayden? Get to work on those, right? <laughs> All right, Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. Even with what one analyst called rapid and broad changes among wine drinkers and retailers, sales of California wine in the United States increased in 2017. The Wine Institute reports California wine sales rose 1% in volume and 3% in value as American shoppers bought more premium-priced wines. The number of locations that sell wine has risen 20% in the past decade, reflecting changes in the grocery and restaurant sectors. Investments in food and agricultural technology have surged so far this decade, that according to a new University of California report. The study says venture capital funding in ag tech reached more than $10 billion last year and that California leads the nation in such investments. The UC report says many of the investments focus on incorporating robotics, information technology, and remote sensing technology in the food chain. America's food production and food distribution systems can produce affordable and abundant food available anytime, anywhere. However, the problem is the system is not good at making sure all of it gets used. And food mavens Patrick Bultima told an audience at this year's USDA Ag Outlook Forum that is resulting in some staggering numbers related to food loss and food waste in our country. For instance, the estimate is 40% of everything farmers produce is thrown away. On produce, the estimate is 70%. Or translated one way into dollar figures. The estimate is somewhere between two and $300 billion of economic loss each year in the U.S. food system. Estimates have food waste comprising one-third of landfill material, which Baltimore says constitutes not only environmental impacts, but economic ones as well. It represents just enormous resources, water, and all of the resources associated with farm production that's lost. Yet while food loss and food waste is an issue in and of itself, Baltimore believes it's indicative of a greater area of concern. It's just a symptom of what happens in the food system. And by the way, about half of waste is post-consumer waste. About half of it is system waste. Several factors contribute to food system waste, according to Baltima. Among those, the decades-long trend of industrialization of the nation's food system, expectation of abundance by consumers, oversupply by producers and food providers in both local and national food systems, confusion about dates on labels, and the cull of imperfect produce and food items. So what can be done to reduce food loss, at least within the value chain? Baltima offers one example a sustainable model used by his company and others, which captures food shipments rejected for whatever reason by a distributor or vendor. The food is offered to supply partners, which in turn creates opportunity to recover some revenue. And then we're carrying it out of the retail system. So we're actually selling to food service professionals, people that understand the product. We give all full information on what's kind of the character of the product. And so restaurants, institutional kitchens, school districts, hospitals, hotels, senior living centers, and then commercial food businesses are buying the product. 
If there is oversupply, then donation is made to charitable organizations, which in the case of Baltimore's company. One of the things that our charity partners tell us is that we actually get them way more proteins and produce than what they would otherwise see. And what food supply remains, instead of going to a landfill. We have contracts with pig farms and pet food companies. And it turns out there's a lot more economically as well as environmentally enlightened alternatives to landfills. But stuff ends up in a landfill more often than not, just as a convenience issue. There's not kind of another viable alternative that's available. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. We've got more of the KSTE Farm Hour right after this. And now let's get back to the KSTE Farm Hour. UC Davis is testing a theory. They're adding a hint of seaweed to cow's feed, and that could help reduce methane emissions from dairy farms. The research tests how a small amount of seaweed in feed affects cow's digestion and also whether it has any impact on milk production and flavor. Early results from the study will be published next month. Are you familiar with the California Farm Bureau Federation's Young Farmers and Ranchers program? They're an active group of agriculturists between the ages of 18 and 35. They're involved in production, banking, business, and many other areas of the agricultural industry here in California. Well, during the recent annual American Farm Bureau Federation's Young Farmers and Ranchers Conference in Reno, Escalon's Katie Veenstra received the Star Young Farmers and Ranchers Award, which recognizes an outstanding young farmer or rancher in California going above and beyond the service to agriculture. Katie explains what the Young Farmers and Ranchers program means to her. My name is Katie and I'm from San Joaquin County where I'm a member of our Young Farmers and Ranchers. Young Farmers and Ranchers is a great organization. It's a group that I chose to get involved with straight out of college. I was really looking for an organization where I could give my time and give my passion for this industry. And Farm Bureau and Young Farmers and Ranchers are both great advocates for agriculture here in California as well as across our nation. Young Farmers and Ranchers really opens up a lot of opportunities for us as young people in this industry in order to learn more, uh, to learn more about industries that maybe we don't deal with on a daily basis. In addition, Young Farmers and Ranchers uh, is a great opportunity for networking. It's a place where us as young people can come together and hopefully form solutions. You know, we are the future of this industry. So Young Farmers and Ranchers provides a platform for us to get together and hopefully address and work towards solutions for some of the issues that we face. Katie Veenstra, besides being an active member of the Young Farmers and Ranchers, is also the marketing director at Glorianne Farms, a grower and processor of sweet corn in Tracy. For more information about the Young Farmers and Ranchers program, visit the California Farm Bureau's website, cfbf.com. The California Department of Food and Agriculture has detected virulent Newcastle disease in a small flock of backyard exhibition chickens down in Los Angeles County. It's the first case of Newcastle disease in the United States since 2003. The California Department of Food and Agriculture is working with federal and local partners as well as poultry owners to respond to the findings. State officials have quarantined potentially exposed birds and they are testing them for the disease. 
And it's essential that all poultry owners follow what's called good biosecurity practices to help protect their birds from infectious diseases. And that's especially true if you have exhibition chickens. And we're coming up into exhibition season at all the county fairs and the state fair. So if you're an FFA or a 4-H'er or you just show exhibition chickens, you need to pay attention and to implement some biosecurity practices. So what are we talking about? What about Newcastle disease? Let's find out. We're talking with University of California certified poultry health inspector, Cherie Sintas Glover. And Cherie, Newcastle disease, it's been a while since it's uh, popped up, right? It is. Um, the last time it came up was in 2003, like you said, and it came at exactly about the same time of year. Uh, and it was pretty devastating for a lot of our 4-H and FFA members because this is summertime. This is when the fairs and the expos get started. And they were, a lot of them were not able to show their live chickens or exhibition birds at the fairs. So explain exactly what Newcastle disease is and, and how it gets spread. So Newcastle disease, when it came up in 2003, like you mentioned, uh, it was devastating to poultry exhibitors, especially those during the summer months. Uh, the 4-H'ers and the FFA'ers were all getting ready to exhibit during, you know, the regular fairs and expos, and they couldn't. Many of the kids that had worked so hard on their projects were not able to show their live uh, poultry at the fairs. Because isolation was needed, so it must be a very contagious virus. It is. Newcastle is extremely uh, easy to spread, and the reason for that is it can be spread in lots of different ways. A lot of people think about their chickens you know, and if they're healthy and if those are the vectors. But people also need to be concerned because they can spread Newcastle on things like their shoes and their clothes if they're around infected flocks. This is a disease of poultry. It, it's not spread to humans, is it? It's not, but humans can develop eye infections and conjunctivitis hmm. um, if they're exposed to it, like in the right levels. So humans can't contract Newcastle disease, but they can experience some eye inflammation. Talk a little bit about the symptoms of, of Newcastle disease. There is a long list of symptoms that birds will show. And the difficult part of trying to figure out if, you, if your chickens have Newcastle is that they don't always show the same symptoms and they might, always, they might not always show the same combination. Um, but some things to look for include sudden death. If you have a flock or a chicken that's suddenly dying for no apparent reason, that could be a sign. Your chickens also might be sneezing. They could be gasping for air. They might have a nasal discharge, and they could exhibit signs like coughing. They could have greenish, watery diarrhea, uh, decreased activity. So if your birds are not feeling well, they're not going to be as active as they normally are. They might also experience tremors, droopy wings, twisting of the neck or the head. They could even have complete deafness. And sometimes they also have swelling around the eyes and the neck. So basically, it's the discharges of the chickens that can spread this virus to other chickens. It is. It's the nasal discharge and it's the feces. And that's what makes it so difficult to control because as a chicken keeper, a lot of times you're out there in the chicken yard, you're walking through feces on a regular basis. And so those shoes that you're wearing can also spread the disease not just about being around the chickens, but it's the equipment, it's the feed, and it's even the clothing and the shoes that you wear in the chicken yard. 
So I guess it just comes down to basic good sanitary practices for anybody who has exhibition chickens, maybe uh, keeping a, a change of clothes uh, out by the barn or whatever and not uh, wearing the same clothes that you were working with with the chickens and going to another batch of chickens. Exactly. So a lot of people, a lot of backyard chicken keepers will actually have a, a pair of coveralls they'll use, and that's only what they use when they go out, you know, with their chickens that are, are healthy, that they've been there for a while. They also want to practice good biosecurity when it comes to bringing new chickens into the flock. You want to isolate, you want to quarantine for at least 30 days, if possible, before you introduce those new chickens. Doing those kinds of things and even having a foot bath, as simple as it sounds, but a foot bath, a foot bath can actually help um, prevent that tracking of any kind of diseases or, or microbes between different flocks. Explain what you mean by a foot bath. Ah, so a foot bath can be, a, it can be pretty easy to put together. It's um, typically a, a plastic bin of some sort, and you can buy a uh, bath mat, usually, or even a front door mat that fits. Cut it down the size. You can put it inside the foot bath. Use some bleach and water. And you can, uh, what happens is when you go from one chicken yard to another, you can dip your feet into that foot bath. When you have um, some kind of surface inside, it makes it so it doesn't slip. And you can easily clean off your shoes. And it doesn't need a lot of water. Maybe maybe an inch or two of water inside. And then just make sure that you change it on a regular basis. So I, I guess to be perfectly clear on this, it'd be a good idea for exhibition chicken owners to have rubber boots for this instance. Uh, it's Yes, um, I think something that's easy to clean. Uh, the good thing about tennis shoes is that you can easily throw them in the washing machine. So chicken owners tend to have, you know, tennis shoes. But work boots, rubber boots, anything that you can clean easily and that you can use in your foot bath easily is a good idea. Now, I'm not sure of the, the backstory on this original infection that happened in Los Angeles County, but it was among backyard exhibition chickens. I, I got to believe that the possibility is somebody purchased a chicken and, and introduced that new exhibition chicken to their flock before uh, any sort of uh, isolation was imposed. It sounds like that. And there is some rumors going around that it is uh, maybe more game fowl that might have brought the Newcastle back into California. Um, you know, we've been pretty good because it's been since 2003 that we've had an outbreak. But coincidentally, it was in the same part of California as it was last time. Um, and having those quarantine, you know, measures, having those biosecurity measures, no matter where you live, or it's a smart idea. Um, but I think especially if there are listeners in the Southern California region, I would be especially um, vigilant uh, when it comes to biosecurity right now. Should chickens be kept in pens? Should they even be allowed uh, to be free range, if you will, and be possibly exposed to uh, migrating fowl? Well, I think there's you're always going to have migrating fowl or birds or you know any any type of um, birds in the environment because they're just naturally there. I don't think there's a way to completely isolate birds from from other types of um, diseases, and there is something to be said for building resistance. So I think that chickens that are um, exposed to uh, different, you know, outdoor areas or environments. They, they do typically build up some kind of endurance or resistance to things. Um, and I think it does ultimately help build a healthier flock uh, because ones that are isolated, that are kept in confined areas, typically um, aren't, as, and aren't as resilient when it comes to these kinds of things. I have read that sunlight is, is one great way to help stave off Newcastle disease. 
Well, that and that is actually one of the crazy things. So as easily spreadable as Newcastle is, sunlight and ultraviolet rays will kill it. And so a great thing that a backyard poultry owner can do is when they are disinfecting their equipment or their brooders or whatever they're using, even if it's their boots that they've been using in their chicken yard, great thing is to disinfect them and let them dry in the sun and have that ultraviolet ray contact with their shoes and with their equipment. When we come back, we have more tips for protecting your exhibition backyard chickens from virulent Newcastle disease as the KSTE Farm Hour continues after this. And now let's get back to the KSTE Farm Hour. Virulent Newcastle disease has been found among backyard exhibition chickens in Southern California. What can FFAers, 4-Hers, and other exhibitors of chickens, now that fair season is here, do to protect their chickens from this dangerous disease? We're talking with Cherie Sintas Glover. She's a University of California certified poultry health inspector. And she says even though vaccines are available, your chickens could still get sick. So even even if birds have had the vaccine for Newcastle disease, they are still susceptible. They can still contract it and they can still actually die from Newcastle disease. What I find interesting about Newcastle disease is a bird can be very healthy looking for, what, 2 to 15 days and still be transmitting that virus before symptoms are seen. Oh, totally. And well, and it's it's scary because it can actually go through your flock within a week. Um, but it takes about 30 days for your flock to actually, you know, get over that disease um, and it, it spreads 100%. You know, once your flock is exposed to that, they're always either going to be a carrier or they're going to die as a result. And that's just another reason why it's so important to be, you know, to be protective of your flock and to follow those good biosecurity rules. And I mentioned that it's a fair season, so you got the county fairs and the state fair, and you've got the exhibition chickens. And I would think, too, that those chicken owners should practice some sort of isolation when they leave the fair and take the birds back home. They do. In fact, it's a common practice. So when it comes to um, exhibition poultry, you'll find that those owners are very protective over their birds, even though they bring them together for, you know, for show and for exhibition um, and for competition. They are very protective. So a normal routine for a, a exhibition uh, poultry owner is to do a quarantine. And they usually quarantine them for at least two weeks after they get back from a show. Um, and they because they want to make sure that that bird is healthy, that they aren't bringing anything else back home. Um, and you'll find at shows too, um, poultry shows and fairs will hire uh, poultry health inspectors. And part of that was part, um, as part of that program, they are there to not only um, educate poultry owners, but also help monitor the birds that are there. Because if you have a bird that suddenly shows up with some kind of illness or signs of an illness, you want to make sure that, that, that they're addressed and that they're able to uh, handle that situation effectively. As a poultry health inspector on the fair circuit, I would imagine that most of those birds are pretty good-looking specimens, so it must make it difficult to figure out any symptoms that these birds may have of Newcastle disease. Well, you know, it's, it is. It's one of those things where a poultry health inspector, although they can't diagnose, they're looking for signs and symptoms. So they're looking at the bird to see how they act and how they behave. When they're going through that inspection process, they're um, trying to identify any warning signs. So if they see something like a nasal discharge or they, they hear um, any raspiness, you know, when the bird breathes, they know that that's going to be a red flag. And they have actually a set of instructions to follow. So if any dangers do arise or any warning signs, they know who to call and, you know, what steps to take next. 
Uh, but that's what's so great about it is that the poultry health inspectors are really there to try and educate and help poultry owners, but also protect you know the other exhibitors as well. So when a bird goes home after being at a show and the owner wants to isolate it, what are ideal isolation conditions? A really ideal isolation or quarantine area would mean that, number one, that it is isolated. It's away from the rest of the flock that might be at that poultry owner's home, you know, full time. It also would be in a different um situated in a different area to where the poultry owner can go to that area specifically and not have to walk through their normal chicken yard. Because remember, things like Newcastle can spread through shoes. You want to have a spot that's, that's isolated from the other birds and from the path that the other coops, because uh, you want to contain that. And you also want to contain um, whatever that bird might you know, have been exposed to, because you're also watching that bird for signs and symptoms You know that they might have picked up anything from the shows. Um, typically, those birds are pretty healthy, and I don't think um, many of the birds have had uh, issues because, again, the exhibition poultry owners tend to be very vigilant. You know, they tend to be careful about what they bring to a show and what they take home. But in that isolation, you know, it's, it's, it's a common practice. They're able to isolate that bird and just watch in case, you know, there is something that develops. So, for instance, with Newcastle disease, you know that the bird's probably going to show signs within a week. So if you have that bird contained for at least two weeks, you're pretty well covered. And in that area, it's kind of almost like a separate coop, um, your quarantine coop. And it will have food, it will have water, and it will have everything that that bird, that bird needs for the next two weeks. In addition to practicing good biosecurity, what else should bird owners do? Three simple rules. They should be able to look, report, and protect. Look means being able to identify what's normal behavior for a chicken, um, to be able to notice if they're not feeling well, if they might have contracted something, if they're behaving differently. So if you're able to look and observe, you're able to notice those kinds of symptoms or signs more quickly. The next thing is to report. If you have a bird that's ill or demonstrating any of the signs and symptoms that we talked about earlier, report your bird right away. There's a sick bird help um, line that you can contact or a hotline. You can also utilize some of the uh, CDFA labs. We have one in Turlock and one in UC Davis that are closest to us, and they actually specialize in avian science. And they'll actually perform a necropsy on your bird to figure out what's going on. But reporting um, is extremely important because that's what's going to help prevent the continued spread of a disease. Um, and then also protect, follow those good biosecurity rules. That means, you know, restricting visitors, you know, isolate your flock to a certain degree, but, you know, don't have a lot of access if you don't need to, you know, from other chicken owners. Um, you know, avoid those contacts with wild birds or with rodents. Even insects can, can uh, be vectors for disease. Make sure the feed is clean. And then also the most basic thing of all is washing your hands. Wash your hands when you go from one chicken yard to the next. If you follow these rules, it'll at least help you um, help, you know, protect your flock from, from things that could be very dangerous. And with Newcastle disease having been found in Southern California recently, it might be a good idea for other exhibition bird owners to keep handy. The California Sick Bird Hotline number, which is 866-922-2473. That's 866-922-BIRD. Fair season's approaching. There'll be a lot of great exhibition chickens on display at the county fairs and the state fair. We got to keep them healthy. We've been talking with Cherie Sintas-Glover, UC Certified Poultry Health 
health inspector, proprietor of chickensforeggs.com, an urban chicken consultant uh, as part of her work. And Cherie, thanks for all the good information about virulent Newcastle disease. You're very welcome, and I hope everyone is able to keep their flocks safe and happy and healthy. Chances are you use some form of natural resource conservation practice on your farm, your ranch, your orchard, your acreage. And yes, there are indeed several types of natural resource conservation practices out there, improving soil, water, and air, as well as related concerns involving plant life and animals. What USDA Natural Resources Conservation Service Deputy Chief Jimmy Bramlett says may surprise you, though, is just how many practices are part of the conservation toolbox. In terms of what NRCS alone identifies as a conservation practice. We have roughly 200 conservation practices to address these resource concerns out there. He has within his own agency's framework an ability to identify conservation concerns. We have 47 resource concerns that we deal with. So for instance, while we may think in general terms such as soil erosion or water quality, Bramlett says there are additional specific resource concerns that NRCS and its conservation partners attempt to address in regards to soil erosion. We are further descriptive when we talk about sheet and reel erosion in a farm field or a gully erosion in a farm field or string bank erosion. There are various types of erosion processes. There's various techniques to assess the activities associated with erosion, the solutions associated with erosion. And from a water quality perspective, both ground and surface water, one-third of NRCS's 47 conservation resource concerns are considered when developing conservation practices. For our water quality resources, we talk in terms of chemicals, nutrients, pathogens, pesticides, petroleums and heavy metals, salts, sediments, and temperature. The conservation practices recognized by NRCS and its public and private partners and those under development and refinement are based on sound science and research. And Bramlett notes those almost 200 conservation practices addressing resource concerns are updated every five years. To bring in the latest research and science so that we can make sure we are providing our customers the most up-to-date information in that when they expect to install a conservation practice, we can better articulate to them what the expected outcomes are associated with those conservation practices. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour. Heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific Time and available anytime as a podcast. Download it at KSTE.com.